Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last week, we held the third installment of our monthly Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University, where we host influential figures of the outdoor industry right here in the beautiful Gunnison Valley of Colorado. This time, our guest is Dan Abrams, the president and co-founder of Flylo. Dan started Flylo over a decade ago with a group of friends, and Flylo pretty quickly became a brand favorite of skiers who weren't wearing skin-tight racewear or super slim mountaineering gear. And since those early years, Flylo has experienced consistent and impressive growth. Dan loves skiing more than just about anything else, as evidenced by the fact that he wanted to make sure that we'd be skiing every day of his trip here to Crested Butte, which we did, But Dan is also a true and very passionate entrepreneur, so this was a great opportunity to get into the weeds about what it's like to operate an outerwear company and discuss how he approaches things like taking on debt, making risky decisions, and how to responsibly grow a company. And in addition to these more particular details about growing a business in the outdoor industry, there are broader lessons about learning from struggles, maintaining perspective while under pressure, trusting your peers, and approaching high-stakes decisions. And as always, with our Blister Speaker Series, my conversation with Dan is followed by a lot of great questions from the audience. So here it is, my conversation with Dan Abrams at Western Colorado University. We talk a lot about the fact that founders of companies end up telling their origin story quite a bit. And I think my favorite thing about Flylo's origin stories is the story seems to change every time I hear it a bit. So I am as curious as all of you uh, to hear this story, despite the fact that I think I've heard it, you know, six or seven times now, but there are always interesting and additional details. So with that, Dan, I'm going to ask you for tonight's version. Tonight, of the yes, I'd like story. the current the current version of the Flylo origin story. Well, it always changes because when they someone asks you your origin story, it's like you know, should I talk about like my first recollection when I was four, or you know, or fast forward? So earlier today, we started talking about music, and I started talking about. You know, I started with like the origin of, you know, like starting a business and what's your first business. And my first business was actually playing music and running a band. But then fast forward, Flylo is a product driven company. And it started when I was in college and it was right around 1996. The boundary gates were opening at all the ski hills. And I was that prime demographic uh, that the students here are now that I was beating up my gear and I couldn't find what I was looking for. So back then, you know, like you could have mountaineering gear, you could have snowboard gear that was cool, but it was really baggy and not very technical. Or you could have ski gear, which was kind of dorky and not as technical. So we all wore mountaineering gear. And the problem with mountaineering gear is that it was it's it's made to climb a mountain and climb down a mountain. So when you climb a mountain carrying skis, you wind up sweating more. And then you start skiing down the mountain, your body temperature changes so fast that the gear just wasn't for us and we were beating it up. So we were warranting it every year, which is something else that you do in college, I feel like. Um, 
and the warranty policies were great. So every year I get a new set of pants and this was my whole group of friends. We get a new set of pants and the each year they got better for climbing and worse for skiing. So the idea came around that, you know, like that what if we found a mountaineering factory and we could contract them to make something that looked as cool as the snowboard stuff and then it would actually function and do what we needed to do. So a few years later, I continued to develop the, the pro, you know, like the, the concept and I wind up blowing out my knee um, in my one post-grad year in Jackson Hall. 14 of us moved from Tacoma, Washington at University of Puget Sound to Jackson. And I'm in Jackson really starting honing in on these ideas of what the clothing is supposed to be. Because in Jackson, uh, the top of the mountain, it could be 20, the middle of the mountain's 30, and then it's inverted. So the bottom of the mountain is going to be zero. And you're constantly like, un, you know, taking clothes off, putting clothes on. And I started thinking about venting and all this different stuff. So I blow out my knee and I wind up moving back to Denver where I grew up because I looked at my roommates in Jackson and they weren't going to take care of me. And I'm in Denver. I sync up with another old friend that's an artist of all things. And he helped me develop these concepts of what Flylo could be just by drawing them. These ideas of like reinforced knees, inner and outer vents, these things that became marquee aspects of the product. He also turned me on to Alibaba.com, which is a way to buy like now you can like buy trinkets for weddings, but you can also find factories to produce pretty much anything you want. And I hacked my way through sourcing and finding factories that would make this product for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably took me two and a half years before I had a pant. And then I went out and with my first sample, I was able to, you know, like go into a store and meet a store owner and, and he took the, he took the product. So then I just had to make it right. And it was a, you know, like it was quite a process, but I used credit cards and I bartended for eight years and I was able to buy production runs and I was just able to sell enough to cover the cost and to go forward into the next year and here we are now. We got 11 employees and we're rocking. True or false, if you hadn't blown your knee out, would Flylo ever have been started? Probably uh, it wouldn't have been started. I was like two weeks away from being a heli guide apprentice in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And I think I would have gotten sucked into that world and I would have been, you know, like, I would have figured out a way to work in the summer and heli ski guide in the winter, or maybe not. Maybe I, I think I actually like, you know, back to playing music. Like I think that there's a DNA of an entrepreneur or, you know, like someone that just takes a group of people and organizes them. So I would join bands and I'd always like take over the band and like pretty soon they'd be playing my songs or at least the songs that I chose. So maybe I would have just taken over the heli ski operation and been the GM of the heli ski operation. Huh. Uh, Cause I feel like that's always just the way it happened. That's actually though, a pretty interesting thing to think about blowing your knee out really sucks, but it is also interesting to think that it is in that space created from an injury that lets us shift perspective, which I think if there's a lesson there, it's just like use everything at every moment. You know, a couple years ago, pretty serious injury I had that without question, because I couldn't be going to the Southern hemisphere to ski or I wasn't mountain biking, suddenly you're freed up in ways that you weren't expecting. 
And rather than sitting around and feeling sorry for yourself, like use that new space to start thinking and getting creative. And it seems like you did that. It seems like you did that too. You know, like refocus on your business and then you take the time to do things that you didn't think that you, you know, like that you wouldn't have taken the time to do because yep. you're stuck laying on a couch, yep. reading more books than you would and yeah. watching too much TV. But it also, you know, also developing these ideas of like, oh man, what am I going to do now? Let's talk a little bit about your own background. Like you are a total product nerd now, <laughs> but your background was not in product design. No, not at all. I studied international political economics um, at University of Puget Sound, and then I got a master's in international trade and development at DU. But I was just, yeah, I'm, I'm just a product nerd. I'm, you know, like I keep my stuff clean. My garage is organized. Uh, my mountain bike is pretty clean. I don't go over the top. But I always notice things and was always thinking about things that could be better. And I really think that like the company is a reflection of my whole group of friends. It's just I'm the guy that wanted to take the risk or that wasn't afraid to borrow other people's money, you know, whether it be credit cards or what, to start a company. Um, not everybody wants that risk. Not everybody can sleep at night with it. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, like that's a huge part of life. It's just like doing what it takes to sleep at night. We're going to talk in a bit about financing and cash flow. We're going to go in the weeds a little bit because I think, well, frankly, I think it's terrifying and you're good at talking about it. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about those early days with this company and maybe a lot of you have, like some of my friends have kind of had those conversations. Wouldn't it be cool to have an apparel company or sure, we could think of like interesting ways to do technical outerwear better or different. And I think that most of us or many of us really don't understand sort of the barriers to entry and some of the incredible logistical difficulties that go into running your own cool apparel company. And can you speak to that a little bit? I think that uh, the new American dream is owning your own company or at least like being a freelancer and being able to own your time or live life on your own terms. And I, I think that that's what companies can facilitate, owning your own company or being a freelancer and going into a company to get rich, you're going to be in it for a shorter period of time because to grow a company, to sell it and have an exit is... That's one style of entrepreneur. I think I go on a different track where, you know, like I wasn't in it to be rich. I was in it to, to have a well-rounded life. I wanted to live, you know, in all honesty, like near a lake within 30 minutes of world-class skiing. Like I wanted to have a girl, you know, hopefully a family. And I wanted to support that. And that, you know, like nothing about that involves like making a bunch of money. But it, it, I did know exactly what I wanted. And so with every little move I made in life, you know, like I was getting there. And a lot of times you get impatient and that'll keep you from sleeping because you're like, am I, am I doing enough to get there? And, you know, so that's kind of like the words of wisdom I give to all the entrepreneurs that I talk to is like, I know you think you need to do more. I know you know what to do and you know that you could do more, but really you should just be happy with where you're at and just slow it down. Mm. And like brands don't get built overnight and brands don't die overnight. But I've, I've known multiple entrepreneurs now that have come and gone and like sold their business, got bought out of their business. They just didn't 
like it when they got there. And then I know other, like, crass-talking successful entrepreneurs as well. (laughs) Okay. Go on. No, No, I mean, I I think about, you know, one of my mentors is this guy, Steve Sullivan, who is a very well-spoken person. But when you get him on the phone, just one-to-one. So Steve Sullivan started Cloudvale, uh, which he successfully developed and sold to Spider. And then they successfully ran it in the ground. And then... uh, he was, you know, like I follow because like I want to know what happens to me if, you know, like mm-hmm. if Flylo gets bought out, like what does my life look look like? So I can look to this guy, Steve Sullivan, and I can be like, okay, there's going to be a non-compete. I can't go into clothing business for X amount of years. He wound up going to work for Teton Village Sports and groomed it to be sold to Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And that was really interesting for me to watch. But then he turned around and he took his whole network and everything that he learned from Cloudvale and he started this new business called Steo. They were able to, t- to capture a lot of the demographic of Cloudvale. And even though Flylo had crept in and eaten some of the market share and maybe the younger demographic, to watch this guy like start another business in a new way and not bootstrap it, mm-hmm. I'm taking notes. <clears throat> Let's talk a bit about some of that cash flow stuff or the bank of Flylo. As, uh, as as we have sometimes called it, you know, you own an outerwear and apparel company. And again, for anybody wondering, like, maybe that's something I try someday or dear Lord, I definitely don't want to try to go down that path. Talk a little bit about some of those logistics in particular. So at any given time, I could owe $2 million to a bank and a half million dollars to friends and family, or I could have $2 million in the bank and I could just <laughs> shut the show down, peace out and be done. But then what am I going to do? You know, like I'd have to get another job or start another company, which could be fun too, you know, like, uh, so there is a certain part of where we're at. And, you know, granted those numbers used to be a lot smaller, but I always like, Think of it like I'm, I'm on a diving board every February because that's when the Bank of Flylo, which, you know, I didn't realize I was starting a bank. But when you have an apparel company or a consumer goods brand in the United States, and this is different in Europe. In Europe, they don't do stuff on credit, but everything in the United States is on credit. I send clothes to all these stores and they're not paying for it. Unless, and, you know, like we have terms with them, either 45 days or 90 days. And this is, you know, a standard in a lot of businesses. But that makes it really tough to pay yourself or to pay salaries sometimes come September, in fact, every year, where we have nothing. You're maxed out on all your loans, and then you you have no cash in the bank. Come November, it starts pouring in, and then come February, you wonder, you know, like, if you're going to continue the brand going forward, what indicators there are. And then there's the whole other aspect of growing the business that if in February we realize that Flylo's hot, and we're going to grow another 50% next year. Well, how do you pay for that? You know, like you have to be a super profitable company to afford growth like that. So you have to borrow money. And if you can't borrow money, then you got to sell equity. And if you sell equity, when you're trying to live your life and be able to retire at some point, it's kind of a toss up. So, you know, the ideal scenario is to you know, find that middle ground, like with everything else, like, you know, how much can we grow and have a bank loan us more money so that we don't have to sell equity? And and how much is enough growth? In 2017, we grew 40%. In 2018, 
In 2018, we're up 25%. You know, like the industry is only growing at 4%. So someone's losing money. And, you know, like, sadly, you know, like you can point fingers at some of those brands that you know are losing market share. Um, and we're just coming up and, you know, like in eating their lunch. And it's it's nothing personal. And it all comes back to these stores. Like if you can sell a fly low pant easier than you can sell another company's pant, you're going to buy more of our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all, you know, like plays back to it. And then we're, we have to figure out how much we want to grow. But we're pretty happy with 25% growth and like, and owning our company and still being independent, not just marketing independent, but actually being independent. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two different things there. When you're talking about 25% growth, is this one of those numbers that you are going to reevaluate every year or two? Or do you think, I can't imagine a scenario where it would seem right to deviate from that 25%. So whether we're talking five years from now, 15 years from now, that seems like a healthy growth percentage. I think that in 15 years from now, Flylo will, you know, no doubt have some years where we shrink. Uh-huh. Um, there's going to be some sort of correction for our brand. Um, and I think that that's natural. What I've tried to do is establish a business where I don't place the orders until I know somewhat how much we're going to grow. And that way, even if next year we were down 25%, I'd be able to grow the business and still be profitable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key to a healthy company is that you can take a down year and not have to sell out and, you know, run away to the Bahamas Mm -hmm. and not pay your debts. (laughs) Yeah. So you've been doing this Flylo thing for, let's say, roughly something in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 11 to 14-ish years. I want to hear you talk about some of the best moves you think you've made in this time, best decisions, and some of the biggest mistakes best move was following my girlfriend to Seattle, who's now my wife, not only because I think that was a good life choice, like, you know, jobs are easier to come by, you know, like than love, which is really sappy mm-hmm. and nice. It's really sweet. And our anniversaries on Sunday. Um, but I think that, you know, like that life is more important than, than jobs. But also from a career standpoint, by moving to Seattle and leaving the business in Denver, it kept me from focusing on tertiary things like like buying packing tape and making sure that orders got out, it forced me to trust the people that I was working with. And and that's a hard thing as, as a business owner or anybody is to like trust someone that they're going to do their job and that they're going to do it well. Well, it forced me to trust them and it allowed me to focus on what was more important, which at that time was focusing on product and on production and making sure that everything was, you know, was up to snub get rid of logistics, can't touch accounting, all those different things. So that was a huge, that was a good move. And it was, but it was a risky move. You know, I had to pitch my business partner who had left Jackson Mm -hmm. to move to Denver, Mm -hmm. you know, which is not as cool as Jackson. (laughs) Um, And then after two years, I left him there. And, you know, so I had this great pitch. I was just like, man, you know, we would be huge in the Pacific Northwest, but, you know, that would cost like 40 grand a year to market up there. We don't have 40 grand a year for that. But if someone lived up there, we could just crush it up there. He's like, yeah, man, you're right. You're right. Too bad. I was like, cool. Well, I'm going to move to Seattle. And And he said... And he was just like, he's like, oh, okay. And I was like, but the, uh, the goal of the company was always to start the company in Denver and then get back to a ski town. And so we said two years after living in Seattle, 
that we were going to move to a ski town, which turned into a great exercise, you know, like every time that we were kicking the tires, it was, you know, like, are we going to move to Carbondale or Crested Butte or Jackson or Tahoe? And it just worked out that it was Tahoe. But uh, the worst moves, like, I don't really have, you know, really negative because like everything that was really tough made us better for it. Uh, But there was tough times. I think there was a tsunami that hit Japan a few years ago and YKK makes all of these zippers and the YKK zipper factory shut down, no doubt. And a lot of people, you know, like there are worse things. And actually that, that was like the punchline of this whole thing was that, you know, there are worse things that happen, you know, like then people not getting their jackets, but YKK zipper factory shuts down. It's a fire sale to get zippers. All the production's late. I start getting like, I got, I got this drunk voicemail from this uh, buyer in Vermont. I'll, I'll not mention the shop. And he's just like, I can't believe you guys haven't shipped our stuff. Why do you think that you're more important than us? And it was, just, I just couldn't believe it. And I got on the phone with my dad and I was really shaken up and I, you know, like told him what was going on. And he said, he said, Dan, is anybody going to die if they don't get their ski jacket? And I was like, no. And he's like, what's your problem? Hmm. You know, like, just, just be patient and, you know, like, let it happen. And it was like, it put it in perspective. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> what was that movie that Leonardo DiCaprio was in where he gets, like, mauled by a bear multiple times? The Revenant. My mantra, this it's not as good as your dad's, but I'm often like, I'll stop and be like, am I currently being eaten by a bear? Yeah. It's like, no. And it's like, cool. And then you just kind of go back. And that's my, yeah. So (laughs) thanks, Leo. Um, Let's talk a little bit about scaling. You talked a bit about the cash flow thing, but how you have thought about when it's time to add more people, when it's time to say, grow into other products categories or areas if you think you have been maybe more aggressive on that front or more conservative on that front how do you, how have you thought about that and and the rest of the team is that a point of conflict in Flylo circles i mean we bootstrapped this whole company you know greg and i bartended and waited tables for 8 years uh we didn't get paid until september 1st of 2010 but I still thought it was a success because mm-hmm. I would get to go on some ski trips to Italy and, you know, like Flylo paid for my lift tickets and stuff like that. And, and I had faith. I had faith that mm-hmm. I was building my resume. I had faith that, I, that someday it was going to pay off potentially. So when you hire someone new, you know, like you have to change that mindset of I would wait until I really needed it, you know, like which with accounting or, you know, it even goes back to Greg that like I really needed his help. Mm-hmm. And so I... I saw it as an opportunity and I pitched him on it. Fortunately, it didn't take too much negotiating. And then the next was our CFO who, you know, like came into my house to exchange a pair of pants. And he asked if we needed help with accounting. And I like look over his shoulder at the two shoe boxes with like accounts receivable and, you know, like and a bunch of invoices that had just been paid. And I was like, yeah, we needed it. And I also knew that I knew that I couldn't get a bank loan unless I could tell a financial story. And I couldn't tell a financial story without someone that actually knew how to put it together. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was good. I just, I feel like we're not afraid to add it. It's just, uh, you know, maybe sometimes someone else has to suggest it. 
Uh-huh. So now our next person, we're adding another customer service person to Denver. But I wouldn't have known to do that, you know, if I hadn't asked our director of operations, Carly, like what, you know, what's going on? What do you guys need more help with? Did you dodge the question about moving into other product categories? Because I'm on I want to press you on that one. Um, we have gone into other product categories and pulled out of other product categories, trying to figure out what's true to the brand and, mm-hmm. and frankly, what we can sell. Yeah. Um, so we're always dabbling in it and we're always trying. And the first product category that we screwed up was doing lifestyle stuff. Mm-hmm. We look to Patagonia and we think that they're amazing and they do everything for everybody. And so we tried to make a bomber jacket and it was cool. And it was very street and it just tanked. And we realized that our demographic, you know, wasn't looking for it. So we were able to recover from that. But then there's this thing called climate change. And, you know, like, and we started looking at all this money that's in the bank. And we were like, how do we get, it's like a restaurant. How do you get another turn on your money? So we decided to go into summer product. Mm -hmm. And that was four years ago. And now we're going in and that business is becoming, it's still only 5% of sales, but that business is starting to become substantial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like we're starting to know our, our people better. And so that's a huge success. And even there, we, we played around with like, are we going to sell the surf and skate shops or mountain shops? Um, or mountain bike shops. And in the end, you know, we're actually, surf and skate was not for us. And we're more focused on mountain shops and mountain biking. And we see that that's where the growth is, that our demographic or our people, that's what we're doing in the summertime. We don't golf, we go mountain biking, which was kind of Rob's line from the day. But, but we, uh, you know, like, that's the truth. And in mountain biking, there's kind of a brat brat Budweiser style and then there's people that don't do that. And, and that's where Flylo can be kind of cleaner and, and be true to our brand. And it's working. How do you go about this process? So whether it's lifestyle, whether it's mountain bike, are you polling the shops you work with? Are you polling what you take to be a representative collection of Flylo fans? Or ultimately, do you think you, you just have to decide internally, we like this move we're going to roll the dice. You can skew data any way you want. Yeah. You know, actually, it's funny because like Greg wears like black hats and tight black pants and like he looks like a product designer and he'll give me trouble because like he says, I dress like I did when I was in high school. Weird. Which, I don't know. Ah, he's I crazy. I didn't wear blue jeans in high school. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, like we did a little bit of polling, but, you know, the data could get got skewed either which way. So we tried it all. And in the end the Flylo customer looks more like me when they're not in, in ski clothes. In ski clothes, Greg and I totally agree. We ski on the same skis. He telemarks, but we still ski on the same skis. And it's easy for us there. So this was a real struggle. But starting a summer line was like starting a new business, taking everything that I'd learned from fumbling with Flylo as a winter company. And you start out and you, you, know, like you come up with designs, you make samples, you try to sell them. You don't sell them, you don't make it. Mm-hmm. Most people don't get too irritated as long as you give them enough lead time when you don't make a product. Mm-hmm. But we got good feedback. People were people were into it, and now it's starting to take off, which is great. Let me ask, I called it last time the time machine question. If the undergraduate version of yourself was sitting out there in the audience now, 
what one or two things would be the most important thing to say to that younger version of yourself? I mean, I think there's that that concept of being patient, but I think you know, no one ever asked me when I was an undergraduate what I wanted to do. You know, I was a given that I had to work, but really what you want to do in the day-to-day, like what type of car do you want to drive and, and how much do you want to work and how much flexibility? And you don't really think about that stuff. But when you, when you start to ask yourself those questions and like, and figure out what's important to you in life, that could really hone in the way that you make your decisions going forward to try to figure out what you want. So for me, I just kind of knew that I always wanted to run the show. Um, and so I slowly chiseled away at it, whether it was playing music or whether it was my failed, you know, like pickup truck accessory business. Say a word about that, because I think that was something we talked about earlier today, which I didn't know. Flylo wasn't your first. Well, I still think that playing music was my first business, um, because if you're getting paid, it's a business. Um, and that was a great way to like learn how to deal with egos and get everybody to come together for a common goal, which was still my goal, but you know, like hear them out. So that was business one. Business two was, was this pickup truck accessory. Like everybody here that has a pickup truck, we've all, a lot of us have like put a, a rack in the back so you could store your skis underneath and still sleep on top. And my truck accessory was the best. And so I thought that I could sell it. You know, like it was harder to do things on the computer graphic art wise. So this was like shoot photos, get them developed, put them on a piece of paper, print out, you know, like my idea. And then I went around the parking lot in Jackson at the Albertsons and I flagged every Toyota Tacoma with it. And two people, two women uh, hired me to do it. I realized that the juice wasn't worth the squeeze and I moved on from that business. But it was a great exercise, you know, it was like more real than selling lemonade on the yep. side of the street, yep. but not really. Hmm. And the investment in it wasn't too high. So it was, it was a great way to go into things. You know, I had, I had like done some carpentry work in Jackson, so I wasn't afraid to, you know, like use power tools and, and make it happen for people. What was the name of the company? It was the Stall Rack. The Stall uh, Rack. Because it wasn't actually my idea. Okay. The idea came from my old neighbor, Robert Stall. Um, he helped me build my first one cause it was his rack. And then he let me try to commoditize it. And that's something that, you know, like that I, every time I talk to, you know, small business owners or people with an idea, I'm always trying to commoditize their business. I'm always trying to figure out how to help them make it more profitable or, or to make it into a business. It's just my nature, I guess. One or two books worth mentioning that have been important to you whether specifically for Flylo or kind of more just your life? Yep. I don't get around to reading too much. I'm dyslexic, so it's a little bit of a challenge. Uh, but the uh, I read Let My People Go Surfing from Yvonne Chouinard. And that was, you know, like at that time, you know, I was dealing with a lot of different crazy things happening with production. So to hear that Patagonia stumbled in exactly the same ways that I was stumbling, it was like going to a psychologist that was that was great. I go back to that book often. It's funny. That was the thing that stuck with me most that I think as the story goes, they were doing really well. And he was like, we're going to punch, punch this, hit the accelerator. And then all the financing issues and cash flow, he, he just was like, we messed up by trying to grow too quickly, 
even though they were on a good trajectory. It wasn't from a place of weakness. I think sometimes what I, you know, like when I look at that, I don't see it as like punching it, trying to make money. Cause like Yvonne, no one would ever say Yvonne Chouinard's like trying to be greedy. Yeah. You know, everything he does in his business, their new mantra is that Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. But on the other side of things, like he's a creative and he's, and he's a product guy. So sometimes you have so many, you have the means to make these things and maybe you shouldn't make them. Hmm. You know, again, like going into a, you know, like me making a bomber jacket, it was the wrong time. Mm -hmm. He just did it at a much bigger scale with so many different things. My other book is like, I'm a little embarrassed, but I, you know, like I'm 41. I'm trying to figure out how to retire. So I've been listening to this book called uh, The Simple Path to Wealth about, you know, like trying to save money and trying to prepare for the future, which like, it's pretty simple and like, and so far, so good anyway. Okay. The guy's like the Anthony Bourdain of, of the finance world. This is that segment. We've started calling it Western versus Marcel Proust. So your turn to ask questions. And if you don't, we start asking Dan these famous, somewhat strange questions from Marcel Proust. So honestly, I win either way. Uh, but, but this is your chance. Shoot. Okay. Um, so when you're... When you're trying to get investors, was your pitches like scheduled or was it more like you kind of like called them or text them to try to work something out? Was it like, how'd you go about that? Absolutely. So I wasn't trying to get investors. I was trying to get money. And like, and investors are great, but you know, like when you think about it, you know, like that's the third option. The first option is get money from banks. So I got shot down from then. And then I was already borrowing money from, you know, like anybody that trusted me that was a friend or a family. And that was going well, but I needed, you know, serious money. So we would continue to talk to banks. And and if you go to our trade show, which is called Outdoor Retailer, you can spot the finance guys because they're the only ones wearing suits. And they're, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, we're, we're still too small. At $8 million in sales, we're still too small for a venture capital firm. And this sales rep found me and, and he, uh, the, our story was that he was, he came into our booth. I was, you know, like two beers in at the end of a long day. And, you know, he hammed me up because sales reps are the best. Like, and, and the way you ham someone up is get them to talk about yourself. That's why, like, I'll buy anything Jonathan's selling. Um, and, uh, and so he got me talking, and then he asked me if I needed money. And, like, I was like, yeah, you know, like, I, I, I did. And that's how I got introduced to our initial investor group. Um, and, you know, after that, when someone invests in the company, when you're small, you know, like, they're not investing in the company. They're investing in you mm-hmm. because it's me that was willing to take the risk to, you know, like to do what had happened and like, and that's how Flylo had become what it was. And so he needed, the investor group needed to know that they trusted me, you know, like our investor flew down or, you know, it worked out. He flew down from Montana and we hung out for four hours with this rep and we got the ball moving. Um, They got excited about it. So if you are looking for an investor, the best words of wisdom that I can give you is never look for money, never ask for money, ask for their opinion. And this is like in life, like when you want something from someone, ask for their opinion on how to get it. 
you know, ask them what you, what they think of your pitch, what they think of your idea, because that's a way to like get them to feel like you respect and you do respect them. That's how why you're there. But this is a way to acknowledge that that you respect what they're doing um, and their input. And if they want to give you the money, they'll give you the money. Awesome, thank you. Hey Dan, can you talk a little bit about the calculus and the decisions that go into uh, how you choose people to represent you and your brand? Specifically, like when you sign someone like Darren Wallace, like. How do you get to a point like that and a decision like that? So people reach out to us. And if you're going to reach out to a company, make sure that the autocorrect doesn't change the name of the company. <laughs> because the autocorrect for Flylo, which is not technically a word, I took two words and put them together because I thought it would look better on the t-shirt. If you put in Flylo, it changes it to Flyflow, which like, then you're out. Or fly blow, then you're really out. <laughs> um, but regardless, people approach us, and a lot of times, you know, like especially younger folks that are you know new to the game, they're just like, "Hey, I'm rad, and I'm Rad Stevenson, and I'm getting rad, and you should sponsor me." <laughs> At which point, you know, like we'll ask the question of like, "Well, what are you gonna do for us?" Like, as much as we love you guys and we want to have the best skiers in every ski hill wearing our stuff. We still got to know what's going to happen, why we're giving you the, the gear. So now what you need for people is to, is to let you know the content, the deliverables that are going to come back. So then Darren Ralphs, you know, like he kind of had a, a hard run of it because Atomic is his main sponsor and they decided to enter the United States with their apparel brand and they got Darren to leave Spider, which was a great deal for him. And so he leaves Spider to Atomic, and then as many hard goods companies find in the United States that like hard goods companies don't translate well to selling soft goods. So hard goods is skis, soft goods is clothes. And in Europe, there's people wearing vocal clothing. There's stuff you guys have never heard of. And Atomic still sells apparel in Europe. But in the US, his contract got squelched. The business wasn't good enough for them. And so he approached us and you know, we really had to dig deep and we pay, you know, we pay Darren more than we pay anybody else. We pay him a lot less than he could probably get from somewhere else, but he's in it to work with a local company. He's in it to actually have valid feedback. And for that, it's like, it's on a different level. It's almost like this esoteric level for him to work with us. Uh, but for the other athletes, you know, like brands have to generate so much content these days you know, from Instagram and Facebook and make and and video that like we all need content creators. So as much as you guys see yourselves as athletes, we all see you as content creators. Unless you're podium, you know, like on the podium at like Freeyard World Tour and this and that. You mentioned um, Patagonia, their motto is sit or work to save the planet. I guess this is kind of two questions. What, what do you guys do to get back to the environment? And what is Flylo's motto? So Flylo's motto is to inspire people to live a life on their own terms. That was boiled down by our marketing guru who lives in Jackson. And, you know, it took someone from the, from the outside looking in to kind of identify. Because for us, you know, the motto was make the best pants in the ski industry, um, which we've done. I would argue, but there's more to it. And in marketing these days, 
it's not about, you know, it's not about what you do, it's why you do it. And that's how we came to that motto for us right now. And Patagonia's motto, which just changed, and, you know, to be clear, it's to save our home planet. That, that's a change for them, too, because they used to, their motto used to be to make the best product while doing the least amount of harm. So it's all, you know, marketing mumbo jumbo, but it is what it is. Um, remind me what the first part of the question was. Oh, what we're doing for sustainability. Um, so there's a couple things there. First is I just got a phone call from my business partner before this meeting, which is super exciting. And uh, we were approached by by uh, an insulation company to you know like to debut in 2021 potentially their first biodegradable uh, insulation. And we're now we already have a lead on biodegradable fabric and biodegradable or you know like this new c00 fluorocarbon dwr so in 2021 we may have a hundred percent biodegradable puffy coat uh which will be pretty cool or it's actually it's degradable there might be a distinction there like we don't want it to fall apart on you we want it to fall apart when it's in the garbage <laughs> um but so there's really exciting things happening right now in technology um, and actually, REI just came out and said that all their vendors have to uh, remove uh, fluorocarbon-based durable water repellents. So everybody in the industry is gonna, you know, like is gonna be switching over to that in the next two years. Beyond that, at a very small level, you know, like we're a modern, I like to think, hip, socially conscious, and environmentally conscious company. So we do everything from having the right light bulbs at the warehouse, recycling everything. We reuse boxes and we were getting grief for it. So we made a stamp that goes on every reuse box. It says, um, by reusing this box, we're making your tree skiing better. We used to kind of spread our finances out and to the, to the companies that we, or the, the nonprofits that we worked with. And I, it was hard for us to you know really grapple with that. So we focused on donating one percent of our proceeds to protect our winters and that way you know we're just very concise on that however we get approached just like with athletes we get approached by people constantly nonprofits that are looking for help and and they're looking for money and we don't necessarily have a lot of money but what we do have is a skill set of designing producing and delivering really good product and what those nonprofits don't have is that skill set and so we've started a program that we call Good Labs. And instead of kind of doing collabs to make money or to you know, get more Instagram followers, we've decided to, to work with nonprofits and seek them out. And then what do they need? They need a cool hat because that's how they're gonna spread their, you know, like their brand, their nonprofit. And we've started to work with First Ascents and you know, like the Winter Wildlands Alliance and Protect Our Winters, we did gloves for them. Um, and that's a big platform for us that we can use our in intellectual capital to do good. And, and that, can, that can do more than just shelling out some money and you know, getting our logo at the bottom of the website. And we'll go so far as to like hold inventory for these people and sell it for them because uh, nonprofits struggle to have websites that can sell stuff. So, How did you decide on your name? Um, <laughs> so... It's another origin story that is debated amongst my group of friends from college. But the, like, so the story goes, we were, we were like seniors in college and, or my version rather, yeah. 
we're, we were skiing at Crystal Mountain in Washington. I went to University of Puget Sound. So we're 60 miles from Crystal Mountain, which is a ripping ski hill if you haven't been there already. And uh, one of our friends showed up and his new girlfriend was French. And so she had a great accent. And she also was telemarketing as well as all of my group of friends except for me, which meant that I just would wait at the top and they'd go halfway down and stop and take a break. And then we'd all meet up at the lift. And so relative to them, maybe I like, I skied from the top and just cleaned it and went straight to the lift. And in the lift line, she said, when you ski, you don't ski fast, you fly low. And with her accent, it just sounded so good. Um, And you know, like I was playing music. And so I was always struggling for band names. We had horrible band names. So whenever I heard something good like that, I would just save it. And this was five years before I made my first T-shirt. And I could just see fly low. Yeah. See, it looks good. See, that's why I had to move the fly and the low together because it just looks better like that. Fly blow. That'll be my new T-shirt, though. What was was it the French pronunciation or you were talking? Oh, that's Italian. Italian. So coincidentally, you know, when you try to sell in other in other markets, you should think about this when you start your brand. Um, think about what that name means in another country, because uh, we have we have one competitor who has a you know a name that you know references a you know a German style of of bombing English cities, which the Germans didn't like when they went to Germany to sell their clothes. Um, ours coincidentally didn't offend anybody. In in Italy though, they it. It translates, Flylo translates to Volabasso, which is fun to say and looks good on a shirt, although the shirt didn't sell well. The Volabasso shirt, but I still have one. Um, But in Italy, it translates to, you know, Flylo or Volabasso is what you tell your buddy when they're getting too rambunctious at a party or someone that's, you know, like that needs to chill out. It's like, no, 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 Volabasso, fly under the radar. And so, you know, like our brand is actually done pretty well in Italy and like I kind of feel like that's why I don't know <laughs> probably that maybe it's just like super waterproof or... I have a question about um, your early marketing and if you kind of went about it in more of a grassroots sort of way or you know kind of tell your story about that a little bit and then maybe talk about when you actually did hire someone to market for you um so I would argue that we still are a grassroots marketing company. Uh, you know, like the the best form of marketing is word of mouth, is you having a jacket and being happy with it and actually telling someone about it. So at first I made T-shirts that were, they were telemark T-shirts because telemarking was blowing up at the time. And even though I wasn't a telemarker, I was still jumped on this bandwagon for the first year and I would ski around with T-shirts in my jacket and I would give them out to people. Um, so that was one form of grassroots marketing. I would go around with these independent movie companies that were Telemark movie companies that eventually turned into AT movie companies, uh, being the powder whores. And I'd be the only one that was setting up like mannequins and, you know, like any chance I could to not spend money and show up and, you know, hey, if the ski show or the demo that I was going to was at the base of Alta, like, great, I was going skiing. That's what I was in this whole business for, was mm-hmm. to make turns and to, you know, like, and to have this well-rounded life. Eventually, I, th- I think it was, you know, I have hired people. I'm still the director of marketing, though. 
I haven't given that away because when you look at different aspects of the business, like if you're in production, you got to be ready to go to, you know, like go abroad, go to China, do something. And like, that can be fun. But like, if you're in marketing, you get to go on photo shoots at ski hills <laughs> and, you know, like, and you get to work with photographers and athletes and, you know, and I've really enjoyed that part of the business. But I guess it was like 2012, you know, everybody was talking about direct-to-consumer sales and Dan, how are you going to, you know, like increase your your web sales, which is kind of a taboo thing to talk about, um, especially when you're, you know, like the majority of our sales are still, you know, were and are still to independent retailers. And I wound up hiring this consultant that lives in Jackson still, and he worked at Cloudvale. And he actually built one of the first e-com platforms for Cloudvale in, you know, like right around 2000. And I, you know, like in talking to, you know, like the former founders of Cloudvale, I was like, how'd you guys do this? And they were like, well, we had this ace, you know, like, and I was like, how do I find a guy like that? And they're like, well, actually, I think he's available because... Jeff is so stubborn that he won't leave Jackson and he's been offered jobs at, you know, like all these different places, but he won't leave Jackson, but Flylo's small and flexible and nimble. And so we, you know, we're one of his two clients and he stays in Jackson and he was the one that helped us, you know, figure out what our, you know, what our company motto was. And, and he also broke it down that direct to consumer marketing is not about generating web sales. It's about generating sales for the whole company. It's about helping those wholesalers have a tool to tell your story and sell the product because we tell it better than anybody else can. Now, the funny thing is, is that we've been growing so fast the last, you know, whatever, 15 years or, you know, but as a real company for the last nine years, and we haven't increased our marketing spend in six years. Um, So we buy, or we increase our inventory spend 30, 40% every year, but marketing stays the same and we just run it lean and, you know, rely on those wholesale accounts. And, and it was explained to me once that when you sell the wholesale, it's not the wholesale sales method. It's a wholesale marketing method that by supporting independent retail and, and building your product to, to be able to use that pricing model that that's going to be the best marketing for your brand you can get because that's where people go to like try it on and feel it. And what we've seen over the last four years or so is that everybody was direct to consumer and they wanted their companies to just be direct to consumer because the margins are so good. And that is out. That is gone. That motto is, you know, like didn't work. The wholesale model works. And so now everybody talks about omni-channel. So you sell wholesale, you sell some direct, you sell closeout, you know, this and that. You have to be a company that does everything. Um, what do you think are the things that you focus on most um, to stay ahead of the competition? Um, you know, is it R&D? Is it marketing? Um, I mean, the product, you know, products in the, in the, every year they come out, you know, Flylo, Arcteryx, Black Diamond. And how, how do you stay ahead of that competition? Well, it was explained to me actually by that investor, you know, like, because now I've seen all these companies that he's invested in and, you know, different things. And um, he invested in this, like, in this little pod company that was, you know, like what we put uh, in the in the dishwasher or the wash machine. And he invested in a company that was the first to market. And it went belly up, which, you know, like you find that these investors, if they can make money on two of every five companies, they're happy 
Um, so a lot of the companies that I've seen him invest in have gone belly up. So this one went went belly up, and I was like, I was like, Bob, what happened? And he said, you know, it's not about being first to market; it's about being the best at what you do. So when it comes to R and D, like YKK Zippers doesn't care about Flylo. Gore-Tex won't even sell us their fabric. Um, so that's where like Arcteryx is gonna, you know, like they tell YKK what to make. But we don't, we don't need to focus on what they're doing. We just need to focus on what we need to do and what we can do to be better. Every year, you know, we get feedback from athletes. We get feedback from the retailers, which is probably, you know, that's, that's the wholesale R&D method. Because they're going to tell us, you know, like, we had so many women try on these pants and they never bought them. You know, that tells you that your fit is off uh, if they can't sell it through. And then, you know, we also are consumers ourselves. And we're always looking for the new thing. Um, so that also goes into R&D. But for us as being such a small company, we actually don't get to make too many samples um, and test them you know, way ahead of time. We have to go into, into kind of known quantities uh, to know that like, you know, our, our show pony marquee jacket is the lab coat and uses event fabric. Well, how are we going to test an event jacket if, you know, like if we can't make it? Well, we better look at like at data on how events done for other people. I was spotted last year wearing an Arcteryx Gore-Tex Pro Shell, you know, like because I got to know, you know, like I got to know what's going on. And we do that all the time. So we don't need to be first market. We just do it the fly low way, which is typically make it tougher, make it look cooler. Well done, crowd. I think we're going to wrap on that for now. Dan, thank you. This was fun and informative. The origin story, I feel like really stayed pretty true to the one I've heard. So I, that was that was really incredible. I tried. Incredible not to get moment derailed. for me. But um, it's been fun to watch the trajectory and it's been fun to hear you talk here about where things might be headed and how you're thinking about them. And so we appreciate you sharing all of that with us. So Thanks thank for you. having me. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Dan Abrams for the conversation. And head over to flylogear.com to check out the current Flylo lineup. Or you can head over to the Blister website to check out some of our reviews of Flylo gear. Thanks also to everyone who came out to the event last Thursday night. And special thanks to all of you who asked such good questions. And if you'd like to join us at Western for the next Blister Speaker Series event, then come see us in Gunnison, Colorado on April 25th at 6 p.m., where my guest will be Ashley Kornblatt, the owner of Western Spirit Cycling and founder of Public Land Solutions. Finally, thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Now take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.